Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on effective teaching strategies. Good morning, everybody. I'm thrilled to be back with you today. I'm Jen Middleton with Family Medicine at Riverside. And today we're going to be talking about the five micro skills. So show of hands, who has heard of the micro skills related to precepting before? All right, cool. You will by the end of our 45 minutes together today. And you'll see the subtitle today is Educating Five Minutes at a Time. So a lot of times when we're doing teaching and we're working with learners, with residents or with students, time is a big pressure, right? We have to get a lot done. We have to keep seeing our patients. We have to keep things going. So how do you make it meaningful in those short little gaps of time? So this will give you some specific tools about how to do that. So what are the objectives? So you're going to be able to describe the five micro skills of precepting. And then we're also going to talk about questioning techniques that facilitate and support learning. And I'll give you some examples of questioning techniques that do and do not facilitate learning. When I say precepting, I'm talking about any encounter that you're having with a learner that is one-on-one. -on -one. Classically, in the outpatient world, it's in between seeing patients in an office setting, but certainly these same techniques can apply and work uh, in the hospital setting as well. So I'd love to hear a little bit from all of you what kinds of interactions you're having right now with learners and what kinds of learners in a one-on-one -on -one sort of way. Are they following you around during office hours? Are they doing rounds with you here at Kobacker or in the hospitals? So can I have a couple of folks just give me some examples Examples of what sort of things you're doing right now? Right now, not right now, but in patient, we have some uh, <clears throat> medical students or residents that do uh, rounds with us on the wards, on the floors. Okay. Um, that's mostly it. I haven't had any in the outpatient setting as yet. Okay. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same. Is there anybody doing any outpatient teaching right now? Not too much. Yeah. I mean, I pretty much, pre I'm a PGY2, so I pretty much precept with my attendings. Uh, so you're on the flip side yeah. of the equation. Yeah, exactly. All right, very good. Of those of you who are thinking about your plans for next year, how many of you imagine doing any outpatient precepting in, the next, in your next uh, stepping stage of your career? Potentially. Well, we'll try to make the shift a little bit more inpatient, which was what I sort of suspected. The examples that we're going to talk about are a little bit more outpatient family medicine oriented, but what I would love is for some examples of things that feel more real in your world, and we'll rewrite some of them for next year. But let's talk a little bit about some of those one-on-one -on -one teaching challenges first. If you're on the wards, you've got a lot going on. What are the things, do you ever feel like Mr. Indiana, I guess I should say Dr. Indiana Jones, with the boulder behind you when you're in the middle of teaching? What kind of things make teaching difficult or stressful in that situation? Care. Tell me more. Um, so you have to balance between uh, educating the person that's with you, your resident, your student, and your responsibility as a physician and so you're balancing the teaching with the patient's needs. Is there anything else you have to balance teaching with? 
Time, time, time. Always, always, always. What else? Say a little bit more about how those make it challenging. Uh, competing for attention. Again, uh, playing into time. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry, the second thing you said was nursing concerns and distractions. distractions. I started to write didactic, I don't know why. Apparently that's what's on my mind this morning. So kind of going a little bit back to some of this. So it's, you have a lot you have to juggle when you're doing inpatient teaching, right? There's a lot going on at the same time. And how do you sneak any teaching in there? What else? Do you have students with you in the office? Yeah, I do. So tell me what it's like trying to teach students in the office. always seems to come back to this, no matter what folks mention when I ask this question. It always seems to, because we all love our jobs, and we all want to be good teachers when we have the opportunity, but we also all want to go home before midnight, right? And we also don't want our patients to be waiting hours and hours to see us, getting back to patient care. What people do in films and TV when being chased by a boulder. So this blue is something sensible, like jump to the side. And this orange is run straight down the hill directly in front of it. So we've talked a lot about teaching theory and presentation skills in our time together so far this year. Today we're going to be extremely sensible and pragmatic. So these are things that you can do on the fly to make a really big difference in terms of how your learners learn, even when you don't have a lot of time, all right? So even when you're feeling all of these pressures, we're gonna be sensible, okay? You don't have to be a scaredy cat. Five minutes can feel impossible that you can do anything meaningful in that amount of time with teachers. I'm hoping to convince you otherwise using the five micro skills. And if anybody would like the original article that this is based on, let me know. I'm happy to send it to you. So what are the five micro skills? Let me give them to you, and then we're gonna talk about each of them one-on-one -on -one and do some practice. The first one is get a commitment. The second one is probe for supporting evidence. The third one is teach a general rule. Folks usually don't have trouble with that one. Four, reinforce what was done right and five correct mistakes. So we're gonna kinda of think of this as your survival guide in the jungle that is medical education these days. If you can do even one or two of these things with each of those encounters with a learner, you're gonna be ahead of the game. So let's talk through each of these individually. The First one is get a commitment. What is the cue that you need to use this micro skill? The resident or student gives you all the facts of the story and then stops. And they ask this question, what should I do? They don't give you a differential, they don't give you any stab at an assessment plan, they basically restate the patient's story to you and stop. So how do you use this micro skill? Well, here's some examples of some words. You kind of put it back on them. Has this ever happened to you or to us when we were residents? 
Well, what do you think is going on? What do you want to do next? So it's really important that our learners take ownership of the patients that they are seeing and of the clinical decision process that you're asking them to participate in. It's okay if they don't know all the answers, but if all they do is give all the information and push everything onto you, they're not going to have the opportunity to work on doing some of that reasoning themselves. So if you hear all the facts and then boop, stops, what should I do? Try a little gentle pushback and see if they have a little bit more. The second micro skill, probe for supporting evidence. So the resident commits to a plan, but then they kind of look to you for some confirmation that they're moving in the right direction. And a lot of times they'll have gotten to the right place, but maybe they didn't give you quite as much detail as you would have liked about how they got there. And you want to make sure they reason through it correctly. All right, so that's your diagnosis. Well, what were the major findings that led to that diagnosis, you might ask? Why did you choose that medication? Why did you choose that test? What else did you consider? So this microscope also works if you think they're going in the wrong direction. Instead of just saying, nope, I don't think that's what it is, I think it's this, and blah, you can say, well, all right, tell me how you got there. What happened to get you there? Did you think about anything else on your differential? So again, instead of just kind of imposing on to the learner kind of what you think is going on, you're putting it back on them a little bit to think through and reason what's going on, okay? So we're just gonna stop after those first two micro skills here. We have some case scenarios. What I'd like you to do is just take a minute and read through them, and it's okay if you're not a family doctor. Hopefully they're fairly generic. But even if you're not a family doctor or internal medicine or anything that this feels relevant to you, the medical facts aren't what matter in these scenarios, okay? So look instead kind of for the bigger teaching issue that might be going on. And on some of the examples, I kind of give you some clues and parentheses at the end in case family medicine, internal medicine, general practice is not your, is not your ball of wax. So let's take a couple minutes and look through scenarios one and two and three on the first two pages of our handout and then we'll talk about it. Everybody about ready for us to talk about some of these? Is that okay? So let's start with scenario one. I'm gonna take the microphone away from our guest resident if that's all right and kind of move it over in this area. So scenario one. We had a PGY1 resident precepting a new outpatient encounter. So we have a 45-year-old man who's had low back pain for two weeks. He's a computer programmer, so he's probably not doing a lot of heavy lifting most of the time. But he had to lift some heavy boxes at work. The pain started after that. Tylenol's helping a little. He's trying some other stuff. It's not helping. What should we do next? So what micro skill do you think applies here? Get a commitment. So, yeah, the resident gave all the facts, but then kind of stopped. What should we do next? This is a first-year resident, so maybe they haven't seen a lot of this before, and they're not sure what to do next. So how might you respond? What did you guys write down in terms of some things that you might say back? You could say, what do you think is going on? Okay. What, what's, the, what's the process that's happening? Okay, great. What, what should we do? Yep, love it. Any other thoughts? Any past dramas? 
So you might want to get a little bit more information also potentially. There might be some gaps in the history that you want to fill in a little bit, but that also kind of helps get things back to them. But the temptation is, is to say, here's what we should do next. And there's time and a place for that, absolutely. You don't want to micro-skill somebody to death, especially if they really are stuck. But you want to kind of get to the edge of where their comfort is either so that they can learn and grow, okay? Let's turn the page and do scenario two. So a 67-year-old female I've gotten to know pretty well with hypertension, diabetes, obesity. She's complaining of two to three days of burning pain with a rash on the lower left side of her back. I think it's shingles. And the cheat provided for you there is that she probably, resin's probably right, it's probably shingles, right? But they didn't give you a whole lot of other information to go along with that. It was pretty short. Maybe this is a resident who's running behind. They're like, okay, this is what I think it is. Let's roll on. So what micro skill might apply here? I would probe for supporting evidence. All right, so we're going to probe for supporting evidence. How would you do that? What would you say? What makes you think that it's shingles? Okay. Let's try to get more details. Absolutely. Fabulous. Any other thoughts? You could also get a commitment in this one um, because if this resident has a, a good grasp and they've, they've gotten to that answer, but they're kind of leaving it open for you to say, mm -hmm. now what do we do? Mm -hmm. You could get their commitment mm -hmm. of the treatment recommendations. Yes. Awesome. Exactly. So they said, I think it shingles, but then they didn't keep going in terms of the plan. So you've uncovered one of the key points of using the micro skills, which is more than one might apply at any given time. And you probably don't have time to do all of them. So one of the decisions you have to make as a medical educator frequently is what am I going to focus on? What is the most important thing? Because there's an infinite number of things usually that you could focus on. So depending on how well you know this resident in the presentation, you might say, okay, I agree with you. It sounds like shingles. What do you want to do about it? Or you might say, yeah. Okay, tell me more about why you think it's shingles. But you can see how either one of those is going to help that learner advance their clinical reasoning better than saying, yes, you're right, give them some antivirals and let's roll on. Don't get me wrong, there's a time and a place for that when your resident's an hour behind, when it's a resident who you know really well, and you know, if PGY3 in, in May came and presented this to me, I'd be like, cool, go. I don't need any more. Um, so again, you use your judgment. But you see, sometimes it's easy for us to jump to just kind of giving answers. And so what the micro skills encourage you to do instead is to step back and help your learners get to the answers themselves. How about scenario three? We got a six-day-old newborn well visit. So a six-day-old that the resident delivered last week here for a well check. That's cradle-to-grave family medicine. 21-year-old um, G1P1, uncomplicated standard vaginal delivery, spontaneous actually. Did I write standard? Goodness. Spontaneous vaginal delivery. You can tell I haven't done OB in a while. Uncomplicated prenatal care. Baby went home with mom and dad. Mom is breastfeeding. But she's hearing some stuff about pacifiers being bad for babies of moms who breastfeed. What should I tell her? Micro skill. Which one do you want to use? I want to probe for supporting evidence. Okay. Um, tell me more. What What are her thoughts? What are her her concerns? Because it's it's hard to make a recommendation when you just have a blanket statement. I agree. Any other thoughts? 
Anybody think there's room for the first microscale here? I think there's room for the first microscale. There's some evidence out there for pacifiers in breastfeeding, so I would try to get a commitment of what they actually think about it. Mm-hmm. It's not clear-cut. There's some controversy with it, so getting a commitment of what their feelings are on breastfeeding pacifiers. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a PGY-3 in the scenario. They probably have some ideas, right? Um, what if it was a PGY-1? They might not really know. Then you might have a little bit different of a, uh, of a plan in terms of how you talk about them. You might say, well, tell me what you know about that. And it might be, well, I just, I've heard a little bit. I don't know much. Okay. You kind of reach the edge of what they know. That's when you stop drilling them with micro skills and start teaching. Okay. So how do you guys feel about micro skills one and two so far? Pretty comfortable? Pretty straightforward, right? All right. Well, let's roll onward and do three, four, and five. So teaching general rules, offering a general rule, going back to some of that medical education theory and thinking about offering an illness script, potentially. So in general, folks do not need a lot of help with micro skill number three. This is what we're all really comfortable with. We like to teach general rules. We've all got these pearls amassed from our experience. So here's one example of a general rule. In patients with a dry, hacky cough, you have to consider the ACE inhibitor as being the cause. And if it's due to the ACE when you stop it, the cough will stop in a couple of weeks. So you, you've got thousands of these sitting in your memory banks just ready to, and I bet you whip these out on inpatient rounds all the time, right? So this one usually is pretty straightforward. It's important though within the scheme of the micro skills to keep this brief, okay? So it's really easy sometimes to go on and on, especially about things that you're excited about or that you're passionate about. But remember, learners can only keep so much in their brain at one time. So what are the most important three or four points you want them to walk away with from your little mini speech? And that's gotta be it. So in here, Dry, hacky cough for at least a month, stop the ACE, two weeks. That's it. If you keep going, you're going to flood their memory banks. They're not going to remember all of it, especially when you're only providing it verbally and precepting and you don't have a whole presentation to back you up. Okay? So don't do too much. Reinforce what was done right. So I bet you heard this a million times in your medical career. What do you think about good job is reinforcing what was done right? It's not specific, right? So if your goal is to help reinforce clinical reasoning, good job is not good enough. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with a pat on the back and you know massaging egos and et cetera, et cetera. But if your goal is to reinforce clinical reasoning, you wanna be specific about what is it that they did well so they can do it again. So focus on specifics. So for example, treating a UTI. When choosing the dose, you correctly took the previous UTI's sensitivity profile into consideration. Give a specific, outline that out loud. Doesn't have to take that long. And then throw in your good job at the end, all right? So reinforcing. I'll tell you, I do this a lot um, in family medicine with um, patient-doctor communication behaviors because sometimes I think it's easy for us to get caught up in the you know medicine of everything and I want to make sure that my residents get feedback on terms of what went well when they were communicating with patients so that they stay mindful of that also. And then, dun, 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 correct mistakes. So who's feeling kind of squirmy and uncomfortable already just looking at that? It's all right. It's all right. Guess what? Most medical educators hate doing this. They hate it. 
And so they avoid it at all costs. So how do you do this in a way that maybe feels a little more comfortable? Because we have to do it, right? We have to. So be specific, first of all. If you need to, if it's really, really, really bad, choose a private place. But that's not always realistic, right? If you're on busy inpatient rounds, you don't have time to stop every time somebody's incorrect and go off to a little room. Sometimes you have to do this on the fly. But if it's really bad, wait till after rounds and find a spot. This, I think, is very powerful. Can you frame the mistake as not best instead of bad? That might not have been the best way to go about doing X, Y, and Z. That might not have been the way I thought about it. Can I give you another way to think about it um, instead of bad, bad, bad? And if you think back to in your own training when you've gotten feedback and had mistakes corrected before, when did it feel more comfortable and when did it feel less comfortable? And probably more when it did was when this happened. The other thing you can do to kind of help, boy, I can see how, how you might have thought that way. can see why you might have thought that way, but... So again, you're not kind of trampling all over folks. You're giving them permission. I've made that same mistake myself before. Kind of humanize it, okay? And then what do you really want? You want to focus on how do I correct it or avoid it in the future, right? That's the most important part. But if you don't do these things, especially this one, folks are going to be so emotionally keyed up about being embarrassed or feeling humiliated that this correction is going to just... Remember, stressed brains don't learn well. So what can you do to kind of keep things emotionally chill, especially if you're in a big group, so that you don't have to embarrass somebody to give them corrective feedback? So let's think about, you know, the ACE and the cough example. Let's say they didn't get to that. Not considering the ACE inhibitor is a cause of cough, could prolong discomfort. You know, there are alternatives to ACEs for heart failure, for nephropathy. Not all cough is ACE-induced, but it has to be considered. So you can also just kind of objectively state the facts. And instead of making a value judgment on you did this wrong, just saying, well, here's one other thing I think we should think about, spiel, and then put it back. Now what would you like to do? Now that now you have that additional piece of information, what do you think? Okay. All right, we've got a couple more case scenarios starting at the bottom of page two. So scenario four, five, and six. So let's take a couple minutes to think through those, and then we'll talk about those. All right, what do you say? Should we talk through these? Keep you guys on time this morning. Scenario four. PGY2 resident presents a 17-year-old female with dysuria. Didn't take a sexual history because mom was in the room. What micro skill do you think applies here? Correct mistakes. Yes, I think that one definitely applies here. So what might you say to the resident? Um, I had something to the effect of for dysuria, it's best to include a sexual history so important diseases aren't missed. Um, and then reinforcing that if you need to, you, it's okay to ask the mom to leave the room. Fabulous. Any other thoughts? So this seems to happen to me all the time in family medicine, fascinatingly, um, even though we're supposed to be really good at 
doing this sort of stuff and talking to teenagers. And sometimes what I will do, especially based on what I know the resident is, is I'll start with saying, well, tell me what your differential is for the dysuria. And then when they get to the STDs, they usually start to squirm a little bit. I say, well, okay, so tell me about the, you know, so what do we need to do to make sure blah, blah, blah. So it's a little bit of, you know, kind of probing almost instead, um, which I think could also work here. Um, but I agree, pretty important. And it's a little uncomfortable to confront some of these moms, right? Boy, whew. Some of them are protective, but it's important for patients. Okay, scenario five. We've got a third-year resident who's got a 42-year-old male with one episode of rectal bleeding two days ago, vitals are normal, finger-stick hemoglobin looks great, they want to work up the bleeding as an outpatient, totally appropriate, very minor episode. Um, so what micro-skill is this? What micro-skill would you think would apply here? reinforce what was done right okay so what how might you do that what would you say um so i'll be specific and tell him he did everything good which was to check the hemoglobin um and rule out probably other uh serious things and once that's done it's fine to do it as an outpatient perfect yep absolutely i mean you're almost repeating back what they did just to kind of reinforce the clinical reasoning you know you made sure this patient was hemodynamically stable you made sure there were no red flag signs i agree with you this is this is stable how about our last scenario here, scenario six. A first year resident pre presents a 75 year old female for a wellness visit. The resident is confused about the conflicting recommendations for mammograms from professional medical organizations. Who isn't? Um, so the patient's like, should I get a mammogram? The resident comes to you and says, I, I'm really confused. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to do here. They can probably cite what all the different recommendations are, but then they're kind of stuck. What, what micro skill might apply here? No, no one right answer. Absolutely, you could certainly teach a general rule here. What might that general rule be? To know, I guess the general rule would be to know what the professional medical organization's recommendations are and to use your best judgment in, in offering that to the patient. So you might, you know, just say, boy, it's great that you know what those are. It's probably worth having a patient-centered decision-making. You guys are hospice palliative. You're the, you're the supreme rulers of patient-centered decision-making. So this is a great opportunity for patient-centered decision-making to say to the patient, you know, there's a couple of different recommendations. Here's what they are. Let's talk about what your you know, goals are for whatever time you have remaining here and how aggressive you want to be with cancer screening going forward, right? Big difference between a 75-year-old with end-stage CHF and a 75-year-old who's running marathons in terms of health maintenance. So I agree. Any other thoughts about scenario six? So how do you feel about the last three micro skills? Pretty intuitive, right? 
What I think is important about the micro skills, which is true of a lot of things in faculty development, is that this isn't rocket science. This is the easiest presentation you're going to have all morning, right? You're going to do much more cerebral things later on. But putting names and labels on the things that we do as teachers and making deliberate and intentional choices about when and how we employ them is what takes your teaching from good to great. So next time you're in a one-on-one -on -one teaching scenario, even if it is with the group on rounds, do you get any cues that get you to think about these micro skills? And you can't do this wrong. If you think about using one of the micro skills, you, you're, you're probably right. Um, you can't mess that up. And as you saw, a lot of times there's more than one that might apply. So pick the one that you think is most important. But if you do that deliberately, you're going to help your learners advance their clinical reasoning in a much more sophisticated and meaningful way than just giving them the answer and rolling on. Okay? Let's wrap up with just talking a little bit about asking questions effectively. What do I mean by that? Well, we have to ask questions to our learners all the time, right? So one of our earlier scenarios just now, somebody wanted to get some more information. They didn't feel like they had enough in the history that they wanted. So we have to ask questions about that. We have basically all the micro skills involve some questioning. What do you want to do next? Why did you make that choice? Um, etc. So how do we do that in a way that most helps reinforce clinical reasoning? Well, one way is to restrict the use of closed-ended questions to establishing facts. So in that scenario where you wanted more information, well, how long has it been going on for? What have they tried? Who, what, where, why, how? Getting those details, totally appropriate. But then once you've got the information that you need to get to the diagnosis or the treatment plan, Think about intentionally switching over to open-ended questions that are probing. What do you think now? So now that we've thought about all those details of the history, what, it, what are you thinking? What is your plan? What would you like to do next? Or even, where are you stuck in this case, if you get the sense that they're stuck? Okay? What's in your differential? What do you want to do? What led you to this diagnosis? Why did you make that choice? So try to keep the close-ended stuff to getting facts. This one I struggle with a lot. I know you're shocked after all of our time together. Patience is not one of my best virtues, so I have to be thoughtful about this. But you have to give adequate time for a response. Remember when we did the learning styles not too long ago? Some of the learning styles need some time to think before they're going to be ready to jump back at a response, especially reflectors, but theorists also. So use all those wonderful active listening skills that you're so fabulous at employing with patients, also with your learners, and try not to jump in too soon, especially, especially, especially if you recognize that your learner is a reflector, because reflectors especially need a lot of time to think through before they're going to be ready to respond. And if you kind of jump in too fast, you're going to, again, take away the opportunity for them to do the thinking and get there on their own. Okay. You can do this one too much, but think about if you get a poor answer, following that up with another question. How are you going to treat this 15-year-old's acute sinusitis? I'm going to give him a Z-pack. 
My residents at Family Medicine will tell you, you never come to Middleton and precept acute sinusitis and say you want to give an antibiotic because Middleton will quote the evidence base at you and all the Cochrane meta-analyses against antibiotics for sinusitis tell she's blue in the face. So if somebody were brave enough to come and say this to me, or more likely maybe a student or a new resident who hasn't worked with me yet, what might I say? All right, well... What's the evidence base regarding antibiotics for acute sinusitis of three days duration? So instead of just launching into my spiel, I might ask, what do they know about what the evidence base is? Maybe they do know it, but they have a really good reason. This is a patient who has a complicated medical history I don't know about. There's something else going on, potentially. Um, this is an immunocompromised patient, something that, that might be different. So. Putting it back on them gives you a chance to get a sense about where the edge of their knowledge is, but also gives them the chance to give you any more information that might change what your baseline thinking is a little bit. Now you can imagine doing this to death, right? You can imagine you just keep pestering and asking questions back and asking questions back and there's an unpleasant term for that called pimping. And what does pimping do to your learner's cortisol levels? All right, And what happens when their cortisol levels are like this? They don't learn. So you need to be attentive to nonverbal cues, but when done in a supportive way, again, this gives your learner the chance. Your learner might say, oh, yeah, okay, there, you know, I, I know there's meta-analyses, blah, 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 but I just don't know what to do because this patient is really insisting on the antibiotic. Ah, now I've uncovered something that I can teach a general rule on, potentially, or do some problem solving with. So it just it gives you a little bit more to play with than just launching into your speech. There's usually a bigger issue hiding behind some of these. Again, you can also do this one to death, but resist the temptation to just straight out answer learners' questions. What should I treat this with? What antibiotic should I use? What, what can I use to make this better? Use a counter question. Where could you find the answer to your question? Let's go look it up together. Let me show you how I would find the answer to that question. Every July, a new delightful army of first-year residents comes into our program, and they're very uncomfortable, as most first-year residents are, with doses, with which drugs to use, their newfound prescribing powers. And almost universally, they come in and say, okay, I, what, what drug should I use? How should I dose it? And universally, I pull out my smartphone and say, let's look it up together. So next time, they know where to go to find the answer to that question and they can start to become more independent in doing it. Again, you don't want to keep doing this ad nauseum until somebody's feeling pimped to death or you're just torturing them. But try to get to the edge of what they know, and the nice thing about this response is you're collaborating then. Let's do it together. Let's find that together. This is a great thing to do also when you don't know the answer, because sometimes you're not going to know the answer as a teacher. And that's an awesome thing to role model. I don't know what the answer to that question is. Here's where I would go to look it up. And now you've kind of done something very powerful to your learning relationship with that learner by expressing that humility, and you've taught them something. Here's where I go when I don't know how to find that answer. Statements are better than questions that may sound intimidating. Do you understand? Who's going to say no to that question? Not very many folks, right? Would you say no to that question? I wouldn't say no to that question. Okay, so, so, but we want to make sure they understand, right? After we've given our little totter pearl or done micro skill three. So, something like this. Well, this concept can be tough to understand. 
How are you feeling about what we just talked about? Is there anything that's still confusing? So instead of just going straight to that question, providing this statement first, kind of, again, lowers the stress level, makes it okay to not know the answer, and then gives you the chance to explore whether they're doing okay. So quickly, with our time remaining, let's just talk through these together in the interest of time. So scenario seven is on page four. So those of you who are reflectors, it's okay. I don't think we had any reflectors in our group, though, as I recall. We had all, we had all these practical applicator doer types. So you guys should be okay with just jumping in here. Scenario seven, PGY3 resident diagnoses a 60-year-old male with a CHF exacerbation. The patient has gained five pounds in the last week, has severe dyspnea with exertion, and three-plus bilateral lower extremity pitting edema. The resident is unsure whether the patient should be admitted. So at the top of page four are a list of all of our questioning techniques, all right? So what is your temptation? I can already see on some of your faces what your temptation is. Well, yes, you should admit that patient. Sheesh. But... Because we're expert teachers, we're going to choke that back. And we're going to use what questioning technique? What questioning technique would anybody like to use here? No wrong answer. I'd, used, I'd use open probing questions, eliciting, well, what, what do you think is going on? What are your thoughts? Um, have them give you more information about what's moving their thought process forward. Fabulous, fabulous. So where is it that they're stuck? What might be the reasons to keep somebody out of the hospital versus put them in? Anybody else? Any other questions that you think might work here? Of our questioning techniques, sorry. What complications do you foresee? Ah. If they could be managed at home versus hospital, what do you think? So you're almost using a counter question there. You know, if they're saying, I'm not sure whether to admit this patient or not, you're saying, all right, well, let's say we don't admit them. What do you think is the course of what could happen? Um, and then the cool thing about that is, just like here, they may get there themselves. And that's where the money is, right? If they get there themselves, whew, that's magic. That's magic. All right, let's move on to scenario eight, just in the interest of time, and to make sure if you all have any questions, we have a second for that. So we have a first-year resident who diagnoses a 34-year-old female with an asthma exacerbation. You ask what they're going to do to help the cough, and they're going to give some Delsum. Um, Delsum does not treat bronchospastic cough. As any of you who have done family or internal medicine know, you need some albuterol and maybe some prednisone. So we're totally going down the wrong path here. So what questioning technique from the top of page four would you like to use here? I'd use the open-ended questions again and just say and ask what they believe the cough is from. Great. That would work. Other thoughts? Same thing, just different way. Uh, tell me some of the differential diagnosis. At uh, that time, they'll be thinking. Okay. All right. Cool. Can follow a poor, poor question, or sorry, poor answer with another question, but use the, the open-ended to do so. So two techniques at once. You guys are getting good at this. I love it. Yes, I agree. Okay? So those are the five micro skills and some questioning techniques in your faculty development series. Things to try next time that you're on the wards or you're working one-on-one -on -one, um, with learners. Look for those cues. Make the deliberate choice to use some of these techniques 
And again, you take your teaching from good to great when you do that. I'll hang around for any questions at the end, but I want to be respectful to our next presenter since we started a little late this morning. Mm -hmm. But have a rock and roll day. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content. Make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum. <laughs>